If that didn't wake you up, for you're no longer a slave to fear this morning, say amen. amen. It's amazing to think about all the many blessings of salvation and the eternal blessings and joys that come from knowing Christ. And, uh, but more than even just that, there's the physical, the, the earthly blessings we receive today because we know Christ. And so, again, as we go through these coming weeks and months, uh, obviously going through Christmas, um, and as you saw, next week we're starting a brand new series, uh, Who Needs Christmas? And we're going to kind of delve into that topic more in the coming four weeks. And so I encourage you, uh, if you know anyone that is looking for a church, anyone that is maybe used to go to church, but let's be real, was burned by a church, because sometimes Christians aren't very Christian, right? You know what I'm talking about? And uh, say things and do things that just hurt people, and uh, it's unfortunate. But if they're looking for a church, if you are encouraging them to find Christ, uh, we would love for them to join us in the coming four weeks. Um, every survey you've ever read or you'll ever read about uh, church attendance, visitor attendance to churches, uh, the number one way to grow a church, every research group, Barna, all of them have proven this out, is a personal invitation. Something like 80 to 90% of people say, I would attend a church if I was invited. If somebody just said, would you come to church with me? 80 to 90% of Americans say, I would go. Now you might be sitting there thinking, man, I've invited so-and-so so many times and they keep turning me down. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe they're not ready yet. Maybe they're not there yet. Maybe they'll come at another point. Maybe they'll never come to our church. Maybe they'll go to a different church. But you just plant the seeds. You just plant the seeds. You just encourage them to come. And so I want to encourage you in the next week or two weeks as we're getting closer to Christmas and it's more on people's minds that maybe don't normally attend church or don't normally think about the things of God or the things of Christ. Maybe you'd see it as an opportunity to encourage them to be a part of what God is doing here in our church. And so if you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we're going to look at a few verses this morning in Mark chapter 6. Um, and we're going to be talking this morning about a glimpse into the miraculous, a glimpse into the miraculous. We're going to be kind of walking through and talking about an overview of some of the miracles of Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to worship him. I want to praise our Savior. Uh, he is amazing. And so this morning is really about just promoting him and promoting all that he did while on earth and the miracles and maybe look into why did he perform so many miracles and what was his goal in doing these things and what can we learn from these things today? And then ultimately a question many of us want to know is, does he still perform miracles today? What does that look like now that he's not on planet earth as he was in the Gospels? And so we're going to talk about that this morning a little bit, but I want to just exalt Christ this morning. I feel like sometimes we can go to church and we almost forget about worshiping him sometimes. We get so wrapped up in our own thinking and our own ways. And so let's do that this morning. Let's exalt him because I truly believe that Jesus Christ is the most misunderstood, misquoted, intriguing, controversial figures in all of human history. But I believe he was the most impactful, the most life-changing, the most eternally changing human being in human history when he took on flesh as the God-man. The hardest thing for people to accept about Jesus when you talk to people today is not so much even that he lived, not so much even that he died, but it's the fact that he performed many miracles while on earth. 
Skeptics have always challenged these supernatural events by attempting to explain them away, coming up with scientific or, or maybe physical answers to these miracles. The Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. has on display a leather-bound book compiled by Thomas Jefferson where he pasted all portions of the Gospels that contain no miraculous element. This was the Bible he used towards the end of his life, a more palatable gospel of Jesus the teacher, but not Jesus the miracle worker. And I don't know what it is, but so many people struggle with accepting the fact that Jesus really was God and really did perform these great miracles. And when we read the Gospels, you read many miraculous events. And I don't know what that brings out in you. But to me, when I read about the things that Jesus could just do so easily, and as a follower of Christ, that excites me. That kind of pumps me up because it means that my God can do anything. That there is nothing impossible with your Savior if you know Christ as your Savior. There is nothing impossible that he can do in your life. There is no boundaries you put on him. Now, true or false, we have limitations. True, okay? We have limitations. Some of us have limitations in different areas, okay? Some of you can do things that I can't do. Like, I'm going to guess, I'm just going to throw this out there, stab in the dark, that Shane could bench press more than me. I know that's, I know that's a shocker, okay? I know when you hear that, you're like, I don't know. Let me just save you the, the struggle of worry and mm, that battle. He probably, no, he can, okay? So his limitation and what he can do in that regard is different than mine, okay? Just like there are many weaknesses that you have that, guess what? Other people don't have, and their strengths complement your weakness, and your strengths complement their weakness. And it's amazing when we accept that we're not perfect in everything, that we can't do everything, that we have limitations— how much it drives us to lean on Christ and his strength. How much when we realize, man, you know, maybe I don't have all the answers in life. Maybe I need to lean on the one that has all the answers. When you're hit with the ceiling in your life and you just hit that wall where you're like, I don't know how to move forward, you don't give up. You give in to Christ and you say, okay, I'm going I'm to surrender now. Because I've, I've done all I can do. Now I need you to do what you can do. I've always loved the story of, I believe it was D.L. Moody walked into a prayer meeting. And all these people, these great pastors and ministry leaders were praying all these really great theological prayers. Sounded really good. And he was listening to the prayers for a little bit. Then he stopped the prayer meeting. And he said, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. He said, no, you can do that. He's praying for this, for God to do, but you can do that. And you can do what you just prayed for. You have the ability to do that. He just prayed for the poor to be fed. But you guys have enough money right now. You could do that. So why don't we stop, why don't we stop praying for the things that we can do and start praying for the things that only God can do? And I've always loved that illustration of just what prayer could be. Now, it doesn't mean we don't pray in every area and pray without ceasing all those things. What Moody's point was, and I'm giving him a lot of credit. I hope it was Moody. I'm pretty sure it was Moody. Moody or Spurgeon, one of those two. Either way, they're both amazing men of God. But I'm pretty sure it was Moody. So anyway, when you look at what he was saying, though, he's saying, listen, why do we do this? We spend so much time praying, oh, God, would you do this? And God, would you do that? And God is saying, I would love to do that. So surrender to me. Give me what you have and watch me do it. But we need to be on our face and crying out to God and saying, God, can you do what only you can do? And then show me how I can do what I'm called to do by your grace. Jesus was a great miracle worker while on earth. But let's just kind of cut to the end of the story. Jesus is a great miracle worker. 
He is a miracle worker. Mark 6, 33. Let's look at this verse together and talk a little bit about this idea of the miracles of Christ and what his motivation may have been behind these things. Mark 6 and verse 33. And the people called them departed and ran afoot thither out of all cities and outwent them and came unto him. And Jesus saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we do, we sincerely ask that you would move among us as only you can. That for the one that is here this morning, or the many, that need you to lift a weight, to pour your grace, I pray that they would receive what you have for them. That you would show them and minister to them by the working of your Holy Spirit. But I pray, Lord, that more than that, that you would challenge our thinking. You would open our minds, that we would begin to worship you and try to see you as you really are. Not so much the God that we've created you to be, but the God that you declare to be in your word. And I believe that as we do that, as we change our thinking and start to think of you in alliance and in accordance with your word, that you will change the way we see our lives, the way we see others, the way we see your church, the way we see our mission on planet earth. And so thank you for being a miracle-working God. Thank you for being a God that can do what we call impossible. And I pray that we glorify you for it as we walk through this. But thank you also for your love for us. As we're going to see, that's what was the motivating key in so many things you did. And so thank you for your love, for your patience in our lives. Man, I'm so thankful for your patience. We have a struggle being faithful in this flesh. And I'm so thankful that when we struggle and we're less than faithful as we walk with you, I thank you. You have never left us. That anyone that knows Christ that has received Christ as their Savior, will eternally be in your hand. And so I thank you for your guarantee of salvation and the eternal security that comes. Father, move now and work in the reading and teaching of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses, if you read on, give us great insight into what Jesus was feeling and thinking before he performed a tremendous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. As you read on there, you're going to find out the story is very familiar. But this miracle is so powerful. It's so important, apparently, in God's thinking and God's plan. It is the only miracle to make it into every one of the four Gospels. It is the only miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in every one of the Gospels. Now, if you read the Gospels, you're going to find out some Gospels repeat miracles. Some Gospels give whole new miracles that the other Gospels don't record. But this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is recorded in every single gospel. And I believe it shows the heart of Christ behind one of the motivations to performing miracles. And what did the verse say? His compassion on them. And why was he compassionate on them? Because they were sheep having no shepherd. They had no one to lead them, no one to guide them. They were lost. And he says his heart basically was breaking for them. He was so compassionate on them. 
So see, as we read this miracle, we think, oh, they were hungry. Jesus fed them because they had a physical need. Now, we'll get to that in a little bit here. That's sometimes the case. But I don't think that was his sole motivation for performing this miracle. I think providing food for them was part of it. But I think greater than that was his compassion on them. And what does it say he began to do first, long before the miracle? It says in verse 34, he began to teach them many things. Jesus did not do miracles in spite of teaching. He didn't do teaching instead of miracles. His point was, no, no, if I do only miracles, then you guys just want a handout. But if I teach you in agreement with these miracles, in accordance with these miracles, it affirms the words that I'm teaching you, builds a foundation of faith, and changes your eternity. Back, if you back up a little bit before this passage that we read, you're going to find out there was a lot of things going on here. Uh, John the Baptist has passed away. Jesus is heartbroken over this. We read in other Gospels that he actually went away into the wilderness kind of apart to pray. He was so grieved with the loss of his cousin. And so as all this is going on and all these turmoils are taking place and Jesus' own heart is breaking, I want us to not forget that even though he was going through something like that, he was grieving and he was heartbroken over his own loss, he still stepped back looked at the need of those that had no shepherd, and showed compassion on them. And I want to point that out as kind of a side note, but I think it's kind of important to think about our own lives. I mean, isn't it true? Any of you that have ever gone through something where it's a grieving situation and you lose someone close to you or you, you're in a struggle, and if you just focus on your struggle, it's defeating. It just pulls you down and it just weighs you down. But if you step back, still dealing with your grief, but step back and start to serve others, in the midst of what you're going through, doesn't that just change everything? It's all of a sudden, it's, you know, the, the circumstance hasn't changed, but the weight is lifted. I mean, you know you're a blessing to someone else. I'll give you a practical example. I'm a very practical person. I want to I talk about this in real ways. Some of you might be going through December, and you're not sure how you're going to buy gifts for your kids. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't really have that problem. Some of you may. Some of you may be like, man, I don't really know that I can do all that I want to do for my family or for my grandkids or whatever. And you might be really struggling with that and weighing down on that and thinking, man, oh, man, I'm defeated and I'm thinking all these things. Word of encouragement. If you really want to step back and see the whole big picture of what this season's all about, out at the Welcome Center, you can go pick up a piece of paper and you can apply. And it's kind of running out of time, but you want to do it quick here. You can apply with Holiday Depot and you can provide Christmas gifts for people that have nothing and I'm telling you, you might think, but I only have, you know, $100 to spend on Christmas. I'm promising you, and I will guarantee you, take just a little bit of that and provide Christmas for somebody else. Even though you might think, well, I can't do a lot for someone else. Just do something. It's got to be like this massive boxes and boxes of presents. Just do something for someone else. And I promise you, when you put a few presents under your tree, when you involve your family in this kind of an idea and this kind of thing, your family will not go, oh, man, we don't have a lot. They're going to go, man, wasn't it awesome, the look on those kids' faces? Wasn't it awesome how that mom lit up because we were able to give them just a couple gifts to put her under the tree? It changes everything. Jesus shows us in the loss of his cousin, a dear friend, somebody he loved, while grieving with that, here this crowd, this multitude of people are pressing upon him. And he stops everything. He teaches them for an entire day. To the point where now they're getting hungry and they have no food. And then he provides food for them miraculously. Showed compassion on them. Even though he himself was struggling. This is what it meant when Jesus said, I have not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. 
I mean, do you ever read the Gospels and go, how come nobody's ministering to Jesus? Like nobody ever stops and goes, Jesus, how are you doing today? Hey, Jesus, what can I do for you today without selfish motivations? Even the disciples, oh, Lord, we'll go get you meat. We'll go buy meat for you in John chapter 4. Then they come back and they find out Jesus has this amazing encounter with this woman at the well who receives Christ. And they're mad because he says he already ate. Well, who fed you? It's our job to feed you. We want the glory of bringing Jesus dinner. Like, I mean, do you see this? Nobody ever in the Gospels just walks up and says, Jesus, what can I do for you today? How can I minister to you today? Now, some would say, well, that's not really the point of the Gospels, but that's my point, is that so many people in Jesus' life for 33 years, as far as we can tell, other than maybe his immediate family, really just kind of used Jesus, wanted from Jesus. Give us another miracle. Give us another word. Give us another sign. Even on the cross, you say you're the Son of God. Come down off the cross. Prove it to us. And yet Jesus, day after day, for three and a half years of public ministry, just kept showing more compassion and more compassion and more compassion. It doesn't mean that he didn't hold people accountable like the temple and driving them out with a whip. What I'm saying is he was still compassionate. He was still serving. He was still ministering. So why could he do that? What was Jesus' mindset as a man, as the God-man, that kept him from not needing to be catered to 24-7 like some of us do? But he was so focused on something else that drove him every day of his earthly life. What was that? I am here to do my Father's will. Twelve years old in the temple. Where'd you think I was going to be? I got to be about my Father's work. And that's what I'm getting at here is that, man, when you read these things, he was so gracious. And really, we would have a hard time being a third as gracious as he was. Some of us would go, man, I really don't feel like teaching today or making disciples today. I just lost my cousin a couple days ago. And everybody would go, no, I totally understand. Makes sense. But Jesus was like, nope, they're here. I got to minister to them. It's amazing how Jesus always made time. I'm not saying we should never take time for for ourselves. What I'm saying is, what is our motivation? And are we driven with compassion for others? To the point where even when it hurts, we maybe put ourselves aside and focus on someone else for a time. So let's walk through this a little bit this morning. Most of that wasn't even in my notes. That was all free, so just jot that down. First thing we want to talk about is, why did Jesus perform miracles? If you're taking notes this morning... And you guys know the statistics on note-taking and eternal security. So just, if you don't see me after church, um, some of you might be visitors and you're thinking, we're leaving because this guy just said taking notes gives me eternal security. <laughs> this quote, um, actually it was an exact quote, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an exact quote. All right. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did he do this? So let's look through this. The first miracle that Jesus performed, we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but jot it down. The first miracle that Jesus performed was the most unique. This is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is where Jesus turned water into wine. This is at the wedding where he was attending there, and they ran out of wine. And so his mother, Mary, approaches him and says, we need you to do something about this. Isn't that interesting? Why would Mary go to Jesus to do something about this? What might Mary already believe about Jesus? That he's God, that he's capable 
She would have never gone to Jesus and asked him to, to turn water into wine or to, to solve this problem unless she really believed he could do something about it. So even Mary, before the public ministry began, is already knowing who Jesus is. Again, still that consistent faith from when Jesus was a baby and those visitations from angels. Jesus turned six 20 to 30 gallon pots of water into wine. This is just after he rebuked Satan for tempting him to turn stones into bread. But he responds favorably to Mary's request. So think about this for a moment. Jesus is in the wilderness. Satan says, hey, you're hungry. Here's some stones. Turn them into bread. And we always said that's a Jesus-only temptation, right? Can you turn, turn stones into bread? I can't. Okay, if you could, that'd be a really great way to make some money, right? Bill, uh, Bill Vout and I would go into business together. I would make the stones and the bread, and he'd deliver it. It'd be a great partnership. We would love it. So as that's happening here, Jesus rebukes Satan. But then Mary, just a short time later, says, can you do something about this? And Jesus agrees favorably to turn water into wine. Do you see the similarities of these miracles here? Or what Jesus could have done? So the question might be, why did Jesus concern himself with a social mishap, with a situation that really was kind of beneath him? First and foremost, in John 2, verse 11, we see that it affirms his divinity as God. But also to encourage faith. The second reason that we believe he did this miracle and favorably responded to Mary's request was to set in motion the clock that ticked all the way to Calvary. See, the, the point is, when Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread, that wasn't in agreement with God's plan. That wasn't in agreement with God's will. So Jesus, nope, I can't do that. But in this regard, it began this ministry, this public ministry of Christ. And it, I, like, like one author said it that way, to begin the clock ticking towards Calvary, knowing he was setting in motion these things. Just the thought, too, something that came to me when I was reading this, and I've always kind of wondered this, which is harder? So a question to think about, which is harder? To turn water into wine, which isn't that kind of what happens naturally? Right? The water goes into the vine goes to the end, produces the grape, feeds the grape, nurtures the grape, the grape grows, we pick the grape, we smush it, we turn it into wine. Right? It's a natural process, the water through the vine to the grape to the wine. But Jesus just sped up the natural process. He didn't need it to go through all those steps. He literally just kind of cut out all the middle stuff and just made it as it was. He went to the end. So which is harder, to turn water into wine or to turn wine into blood? Which is harder. Many of us would think, man, I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. It's symbolic. What did we just celebrate last week? Jesus said, this is my blood, which is spilled out, which is poured out for you. And it was symbolically represented by a glass or a cup of wine. And he's saying, this is, here, drink this in remembrance of what I'm doing for you. I truly believe that's why, in my opinion, the first miracle that Jesus performed was turning water into wine. And one of the last miracles, if not the last miracle that Jesus performed, was turning wine into blood. The pots were used in this situation to fulfill the ritual of cleansing, which would fulfill the law. That's why there was six 20 to 30 gallon pots of water. They were there for cleansing, for ritualistic cleaning, according to the law. And Jesus replaces the water in those pots with the wine, maybe again a picture of how he would ultimately replace the laws and the burdens that came with the law with freedom of his sacrifice. You see, Jesus, this wasn't just a random thing. This wasn't just, Jesus doesn't do random. Jesus doesn't do coincidence. Jesus does purpose. 
And I believe there was so much represented here in just the very first miracle that many people read through and go, well, that was just him helping out in a situation. That was him honoring his mother and father kind of example. And all that may be true, but I believe greater than that was he was showing, now watch me turn this into wine and watch me give you my blood and turn wine into blood. Jesus says, what's harder, to forgive a man his sins or to say, get up and walk? He says, both are easy. Here, you're forgiven, get up and walk. That's why I believe this symbolism is much more than maybe we've thought through. But what was the point of the miracles that Jesus performed? I'll give you a little bit of an example about, again, that first miracle to affirm his deity, to set in motion the clock. But what was the point of the miracles Jesus performed as a whole? To simply benefit those who received the blessing? To just benefit those that received healing? Yes, he wanted to help those in need, which attracted great crowds. But the true benefit was the message they would hear. To show his power over sickness, nature, and death would be another reason for the miracles. But also, thirdly, to deepen the faith of his disciples. So why did Jesus perform miracles? To bless and benefit those that received the healing or the miracle. To show his power over sickness, nature, and death. And to deepen the faith of his disciples. I believe Jesus was greatly touched with the infirmities of our world. He was then. And what does Hebrews tell us? He is now. I want to read something to you from a book uh, written by an author. Uh, it's entitled, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he talks about this idea of the miracles. And I love this paragraph here. And so I want to read this to you this morning and kind of think through this. Um, and listen to what this author says. I love some of the points he makes here. Why then any miracles? Why then any miracles? Did they make any difference? I readily conclude that Jesus, with a few dozen healings and a handful of resurrections from the dead, did little to solve the problem uh, to little solve the problem, I'm sorry, I lost my spot, of pain on this planet. That is not why he came. Nevertheless, it was in Jesus' nature to counteract the effects of the fallen world during his time on earth. As he strode through life, Jesus used supernatural power to set right what was wrong. Every physical healing pointed back to a time in Eden when physical bodies did not go blind, get crippled, or bleed nonstop for 12 years also pointed forward to a time of recreation to come. The miracles he did perform, breaking as they did the chains of sickness and death, give me a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instill hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is no more satisfied with this earth than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it. I love that. The simplicity of the truth of that. That Jesus is not at all satisfied with this earth the way it is, but he intends to do something about it. He has done something about it, and he's going to do something about it. And he's one day, one day, we will be freed from all the sickness and the disease and all the effects of sin. And we will stand like him before him in his glory, and we will be whole and complete. And one day, he will recreate the world, Revelation says, he will make a new beginning. Could you imagine walking in the fullness of what God has this world to be? We read about Eden and the perfect and the, and the, and the, and the pleasantries of that place and think, man, what a place that would have been to be. One day, we'll know greater than even Eden. And so I don't know about you, but it just excites me to think about how Jesus 
yes, wanted to bless those that needed healing, but also showing us this is not how I'm going to leave the world. I have a plan, I have a purpose, and I'm achieving that plan and that purpose. So why did Jesus perform miracles? He performed them to bless those that would receive it, to show his power, and to deepen the faith of those disciples, showing that he is God. But what was the reaction to Jesus' miracles? How did people react when Jesus performed many miracles? Skeptics existed in Jesus' day as well as in our day. The The miracles of Jesus aroused suspicion, curiosity, and to be honest, only occasional faith and even blasphemy. Turn over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to look there just for a moment. Luke 11 and verse 14. How did people respond to Jesus' miracles? Again, it brought curiosity, suspicion. Uh, Some people were interested. Some people found faith through a miracle. Some people found criticism and critique of Jesus through his miracles. Listen and read with me Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a devil. It was dumb. I like that. So you can now say, devil, you're dumb. Okay, that's the Bible talking there. You can do that. Um, That that was was a joke, guys. All right, so, man, that turkey, woo, having its effects. It can't be just that I'm not funny. That can't be what it is. It's got to be that tryptophan. It says here, And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He cast out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And other, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, isn't that like a, a comforting verse, but kind of a scary one too? Because he he's saying that about you right now. As you're thinking about that leftover green bean casserole or whatever you're going to have when you get home today. He knows your thoughts. It's so powerful to think about that Jesus knows our thoughts. He understands and deciphers the intents of our hearts. He says this, And he knowing their thoughts said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Do you get what he just said there? He's saying, you're saying I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan? Well, then how are your sons casting out demons? He's saying you're workers of Satan. says this, he goes on there. Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. And this is, again, we read this, and there's some harsh language that Jesus uses towards these religious leaders, but I love how he ends it. The kingdom of God has come unto you. Why does he say that? Why does he tell them that? Because it's still a chance for repentance. He's saying, listen, this is happening. You need to understand the truth. The kingdom of God has come unto you. How are you going to respond to that? And what does it take to cast out a demon, according to Jesus? The finger of God. He says, with the finger of God, I can just say, be removed. Now, we know that's just illustration. It's really the thoughts alone 
of divinity, can cast out demons, can control nature, can heal the sick. But here we see Jesus is saying, listen, there's a reality here. It's a common sense thing. He's saying, listen, you can be skeptical, but it doesn't make sense for me to cast out demons. If I was with Satan, I wouldn't cast out demons. I'd be letting the demons rule and reign. But obviously I'm opposed to Satan. So why would they attack Jesus this way? Because they couldn't get rid of the miracle. It says it in the first part of the passage. The demon left, and the one that was considered dumb or unable to speak spoke. And they were left in awe. Well, wait a minute. How did that happen? So we can't get rid of the miracle, so we got to attack the miracle worker. And we got to say, well, Jesus must be working for Satan then. Some, in regards to Jesus' miracles, wanted to instantly follow Christ. Others wanted to kill him. Some wanted more for themselves. Others worshipped him as Messiah. And the same is true today. So what was the desired reaction? What did Jesus hope to have happen in his reaction to a miracle? You're in Luke. Go over to Luke 19. One more passage. Luke 19 and verse 10. What was the desired reaction to the miracles that Jesus performed? It's the same to everything that Jesus came to do. Following miracle after miracle, Jesus says this in Luke 19:10, for the son of man is to come or is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's saying, listen, why did I come? Why do I perform miracles? Why do I do these things? So that you might find salvation. Everything that Jesus did led to the cross and to the gospel. Jesus actually downplayed the miracles at times. Said things like, don't tell anyone. Don't make a big show of this. You see, it wasn't a sideshow thing. It was about giving a sign, which is not the same as a proof. A sign is just a marker for someone who is looking in the right direction. You ever notice when Jesus was asked, give us a sign, give us a sign, what would he say? There's no sign. You're asking for these signs. But do you notice that when he, he just willingly gave signs to those that were just looking? To those that were just in search of those things? He just miraculously healed those that were just coming humbly, saying, you are the Messiah. If you could do anything, would you just heal me? When they put faith in him, he healed them. He, he led them. And as you read the life of Jesus through the Gospels, you find out that, man, when they came in pride... He humbled them with the law. But when they came in grace and come in humility, he gave them grace. And so many times these miracles, these signs are meant to just kind of point you in the right direction as you're already on that road seeking the truth that is salvation. One author wrote this about Christ's miracles and the reactions. The Messiah was not going to save the world by miraculous band-aid interventions. A storm calmed here, a crowd fed there, a mother-in-law cured back down the road. Rather, it was going to be saved by means of a deeper, darker mystery, at the center of which lay his own death. You see, his desired reaction is the same today in everything he does through his church, that people will come to know Christ as their Savior. So we know why Jesus performed miracles, at least in a kind of a summary sense. We know what he wanted the reaction to be from the miracles— but the question we have to ask now, which we really may be thinking about, is does Jesus perform miracles today? We read about 35 miracles. We read of 35 miracles in about three and a half years of earthly ministry of Christ. So think about that for a moment. 35 miracles over three and a half years by one man. One man, 35 miracles, three and a half years. 
And you might be sitting there thinking, that's exactly what I want, just one. I don't need 35. I don't need two. I just need one. I need Jesus to miraculously intervene in this situation or that relationship or this thing over here or that thing over there. And I just need one. I don't want 35. I just need one. You just want Jesus to do something marvelous and miraculous in your life. And the answer to the question is, first and foremost, Jesus wants to do a miracle in your life. Jesus wants to move in a marvelous and miraculous way in your life today. But remember, it's not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. It's not going to be in the way that you think it's going to be and how it's going to come and where it's going to come from. Also, we got to remember they were called miracles, not ordinaries, right? Can we be honest for a minute? They're, They're miracles for a reason. They're supernatural interventions by the Son of God into human life and into nature. And they left people in awe. So how can I say that they're not ordinary? It's not going to happen necessarily every single day, but yet say Jesus wants to perform a miracle in your life today. I mean, think about it. A man that walked on water or that could walk on water only did it once. Think about that. Jesus could walk on water, but he did it once that we read of. If I was Jesus and I could walk on water, I'd be doing it like every weekend. Like, I'd be like, you know, standing on the bathwater as a kid, and mom's like, get in the tub. And I'm like, ha-ha, right? I mean, it's crazy. He only did it once. Why would he only do it once? Because he only needed to do it once. He didn't need to repeat that miracle. He didn't need to act in that way again. And I want you to know something. The miracle that Jesus performed in your life yesterday that you're just in awe of, or maybe by yesterday I mean yesteryear, it's a way that God moved and you were just in awe of it. You couldn't believe that God orchestrated all of it and that God healed or God did this or God did that. And you're just in awe of it and you're thinking, God, man, I, I want you to move again. Let me tell you something. God, if he moved in the past, he will do it again in the future. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the things that God did in the past, he will do in the future. But he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. He wants to move in a new way in your life, in a new miraculous intervention. And it's not going to look like what you think, but it's going to be something that will bring him great glory and you great blessing. We have to believe that Jesus is alive and active in the world today. And he is performing the greatest miracle of all time. Every single time someone bows their head and calls on Christ for Savior. You see, it is in Jesus Christ that he died, was buried, and rose again, that anyone who calls out to him will be saved. Romans 5, verse 10 says that we are being reconciled by his life. His salvation is not just purifying you for heaven. It's living in you today through the resurrected life of Christ. And so how can I say that Jesus may not do the big miraculous thing today. He may not do it tomorrow or next week. But how can I say that Jesus is doing a miracle in your life every single day? Because every day that you breathe the breath of his air as his follower and as his son or daughter, and you are walking in the resurrected life and the fulfilling power of Christ, the abundant life, and the Holy Spirit of God is there giving you that peace and that comfort, you are every single day, every single moment living a miracle. You're practically living out a miracle that God did in your life when you were 7 or 10 or 16 or 20, whenever you received Christ. You see, salvation is an amazing miracle because it's performed once and it keeps giving over and over and over again. Can you imagine the leper 
that Jesus healed that went home six months later, do you think he forgot about his leprosy? Do you think he thought, oh man, I, I almost can't even remember what it was like to be a leper? That disease and that stigma and that isolation and all those things that went with it? No, I believe every single day for the rest of his life, that man praised God. I think every time he looked in the mirror and he didn't see the boils and the, the, the disfigured face and the skin that was all falling off, I think every time he saw that, he praised God. And so what are we that have been saved from the sin, from sin's power and penalty in our lives? How do we respond every single day we wake up and we breathe in the freedom of his grace and his presence? And I think every day we praise him for a miracle he performed once, but he's continually performing every day of our lives. Jesus' miracles always set someone free. A liberation from sickness, bondage, even death. And that same liberation is available to you today in Christ. Listen, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the greatest miracle Jesus wants to perform in your life is setting you free from sin. Making you a new creature. Where old things are passed away, all things have become new. And as we sang about this morning, you are no longer a slave to fear. That's the first miracle that Jesus wants to perform in your life. And then he keeps performing it every moment of every day, the rest of your humanity. Until the day that you stand before him and the miracle is complete and fulfilled. But let me tell you this. Although I don't give a lot of weight to the stuff on TV. Just be careful there, by the way. Some of this slapping healing stuff going on. I don't know what's going on there. God can use anything. But I think a lot of that stuff is more about glorifying the man or the person on the stage than it is about the glory of God. Saying that, I believe God can heal at any time of anything as he wills. So if you know someone that's sick, has a disease, suffering, and you pray for them, and you pray God will do a miracle in their life, and then you leave it in God's hands. Because the same Jesus that fed 5,000 and resurrected Lazarus from the dead is the same Jesus that allowed John the Baptist to be martyred for his faith and die a prisoner of Herod. You might say, well, wait a minute, but I prayed and Jesus didn't heal my aunt or my friend or my relative or my coworker, and I don't understand why he didn't do that. I don't understand either. But I know that he knows all things. And so when I pray for something, believing he can do it because there is nothing impossible with him, and then he refuses to do it because he knows what's better or he has a different plan or whatever takes place, I don't go, God, I doubt your ability. I say, God, I trust your sovereignty. And I allow him to be glorified in it. I serve him anyway. And so when you read these miracles of Jesus and you're thinking through all these things that Jesus could do and did do, he's not stopped performing miracles because he's not on planet earth physically because he left his church and dwelled with his Holy Spirit to do what he is calling us to do. So where do we look for miracles today? We look to the church. We look to the body of Christ and how is God using the body of Christ to change the world? And then we glorify God because of it. So here's what I want you to do this week. Just a little challenge. Just pick a gospel. Any one of the four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just start reading through one of them. And just start noting every miracle Jesus performed. And then note, why did he do that? What does the Bible tell me about why he did that? And what did he want to have happen from that? 
And how am I allowing Jesus to work in my life today? And so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to have an invitation. And we're going to have you guys have some time of prayer. And here's what I want to do. I want you to just come. I want you to say, Lord God, I just want you to move in my life. And I want to know you as a miracle worker. Not that I need the big signs and the big, the big uh, performance and the big hoopla. I just need you to be who you are. And so may I trust that you can do these things today. Man, allow him to deepen your faith. Do you know one of the key reasons why he did miracles was to deepen the faith of the disciples? So often you'd read about the disciples being there. Jesus does this miracle, and then he uses it as a teaching moment for his disciples, the ones that would be the founders of the church. And he's working in our lives today, deepening our faith as we study his miracles and see him do new things. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to bow our heads. And as you bow your head there where you are, I want to ask that you, in just a moment, would respond to whatever God is doing in your life. Maybe you would come forward and just bend a knee, just bow a knee here at the altar and say, God, I want to believe that you're a miracle-working God. God, I want to believe that you can do all things. Maybe you're in a situation where you're sitting there thinking, God, I need a miracle. I need intervention. I need you to do what only you can do. And so as we're going to pray in just a moment, maybe you would just respond to him in whatever he is doing. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we want to believe wholeheartedly that you are the God that you say you are in this book. That you can do the miraculous. That you can do things that I can't understand. You can intervene in situations that I can't comprehend even how to start tackling the problem, let alone solving the problem. And so, Father, I pray that we would, as we come together this morning, that we would think practically about this today. But, Father, for the one or the many that are in this room right now that need you to work in their life, They are hungry for your intervention in their situation. They don't know what to do. They feel maybe even hopeless or unsure or unsteady about moving forward in whatever direction they're feeling led in. Maybe there's someone in this room with a health problem that nobody else knows about, with a situation in their lives that they've gotten a diagnosis that isn't positive. And maybe they've gone through the gambit of emotions. Maybe they were angry and now they're grieving. They want to trust as a follower of Christ, but they're struggling with that. As anyone would, I pray that you would minister to them and that if they would come and bend a knee and just allow your Holy Spirit to work in their lives, to give them the comfort and the grace that you have not left them, you have not forsaken them, and you have not abandoned them, but you have a purpose and a plan for them. Maybe they would come and say, God, I pray that you would bring healing into my life. Father, maybe somebody wants to come and pray for a family member, a friend, or a coworker that needs healing. Maybe somebody wants to come and pray for someone that they know that is struggling in some way with addiction. And one of the greatest miracles that you can perform is setting an addict free from their addiction. So maybe somebody wants to come and pray for a family member or a friend that's involved in a form of addiction. They're just going to cry out and say, God, would you intervene miraculously in this situation, in this person's life? But Father, I pray that no matter what we're going to pray about this morning, what we're going to come with this morning, that we would realize that you are desiring to use your church to be used by you to make a difference in this world. So, Father, would you use us? May we do what we can do and allow you to do what only you can do. And in all these things, we want to glorify you, praise you, and honor you because you are a miracle-working God. You were a God of miracles. You are a God of miracles. And so, Father, may we honor you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you'd stand with me this morning, we're going to sing a song of praise to him. Jesus paid it all. And here's what I want to do. If you want to pray this morning, don't worry about anyone else. If you are in need of prayer for yourself, you want to pray for God to do a great work in someone else's life, come and bend a knee. Take some time apart and just say, God, we just want to cry out to you. Maybe you know a relationship that needs an intervention. Maybe you'd come and pray. Whatever God is doing, let's believe that he is the God that he says he is because he has paid it all so that we can know him and experience his pleasures, his joys in our life today. Would you sing with us?